Is God a control freak? No. Is God in control? Yes. You know, many people reading the Old Testament today, and perhaps even the passage that we're going to be studying together this morning, might be tempted to come to a different conclusion. Uh, At one level, I think that's somewhat natural. Diverse laws are delineated across these chapters, and a reader might be inclined to ask, why is God so concerned with what His people eat? Uh, Why is He so concerned with where His people worship? Why is he so concerned with how his people handle their debt? It's like he has to be in total control. Ah, yes. It's not that he has to be in total control. Rather, he simply is in total control. Uh, A control freak is someone who either exercises authority that he does not have, or someone who exercises authority in such a way that he burdens those under his authority. Neither of those are true of God. God has authority over His people because He created and redeemed them. And He extends His authority over them, not to burden them, but to bless them. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is giving His people the blessing of the promised land, and He is teaching them how to live under His blessing in that land. Perhaps you've come to church this morning and you're contemplating the claims of Christianity. I wonder if one of the things that makes you nervous about Christianity is all rules. You might be tempted to think that God is a control freak. And maybe you use that as an excuse to keep a distance from Jesus. But friend, this is what you need to understand about God. He is not like a burdensome boss or an overbearing father. He is good. He extends His authority in the lives of the people for their good, so that His good name might be made great in their lives. And this is what we turn to think about as we open the Bible to study Deuteronomy chapter 12 through chapter 15. Now, a number of you are aware that it was my sincere intention to include even the first half of chapter 16 in this morning's sermon, so that's not a misprint in the bulletin. It was my intention to cover that first half. Um, But Lord willing, we'll just have to push that off into next week because I've bit off a bit more than I could chew in one sermon. Uh, So if you haven't done so already in the Bibles provided, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I think that's beginning on page 156. And while you're turning there, uh, let me recap what's been said so far in Deuteronomy. In the first nine chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses reminded Israel of her history, of God's electing grace and patience, and of God's law. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God called for the people of Israel to give Him their hearts. And in Deuteronomy 11, that petition from God was transformed into a pressing choice that Israel had to make. Israel could choose obedience and blessing, or they could choose disobedience and curse. Practically speaking, what does that mean? What does obedience look like? Well, we find out about what that means in chapters 12 to 28, where we meet various laws and statutes and commands. We're going to study a smaller section of that, obviously, this morning. As we study Deuteronomy chapter 12 verses, uh, chapter 12 through chapter 15, we begin to examine some of these laws that Israel must keep. Uh, these laws are one way, if not the main way, that God's children express their love for Him. We should note once again that God's love precedes the love of His people. The message of Deuteronomy is not that you've got to love God if you want God to love you. No. No, the message of Deuteronomy is this. We love because He first loved us. God loves His children and His children are to love Him. How do God's children love Him? By worshiping Him and by keeping His Commandments. If you were to read these chapters in one sitting, I would not be surprised if you were puzzled over their connection to one another. What does debt have to do with worship? What does lending and and caring for the poor have to do with false prophets? Uh, You've probably heard it said that there is not one square inch of the creation that God does not say, mine. In other words, God is Lord and Master over every inch of His creation. This is true. And translated 
to Deuteronomy, we can say that there is not an aspect of the lives of his people that God does not say, mine. So here's the point of this passage and the point of my sermon. I boiled it down to two words. Totally holy. You see, the very broad and sweeping nature, the total and all-encompassing nature of these laws teach us that the totally holy God wants His holy character displayed in every part of the lives of His people. He wants it totally displayed. In a larger sense, that's what chapters 12 to 28 of Deuteronomy express as a whole. So we'll likely be finding our way back to this theme in the weeks ahead. This morning we'll look at this call to total holiness under three headings. Holy worship, holy conduct, and holy generosity. And let me just go ahead and build in some application right here up front. Just as God wanted His holy character displayed in every part of the lives of His people in the days of old... Deuteronomy. So he wants his holy character displayed in every part of our lives today. The work of the Lord Jesus transforms and deepens how total holiness is worked out in our lives. So we're not going to uh, be giving ourselves to keeping these laws in the, the same way that the Israelites did when they entered the promised land. Nevertheless, there are principles written on these laws that point us to Jesus Christ. And the New Testament writers even cite these laws and give them new applications to New Testament churches. This morning, it's my prayer that we would come to see Christ more clearly from Deuteronomy and see His holiness in our lives more clearly from day to day. So let's turn now and consider our first point, holy worship. And here we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 13. For now, please follow along as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 12, just the first seven verses, verses 1 to 7. This is Moses preaching. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your household, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Well, these verses are quite obviously about worship, aren't they? And they announce a few threads and themes that are going to be traced through chapters 12 and 13. First and foremost, as with all of life, worship, you see here, is ordered by God. It is guided by His laws and decrees. We worship God according to what is either expressly enjoined upon us in Scripture by explicit command or by a good and necessary consequence that may be deduced from Scripture. Maybe you wonder why we do the things we do in our worship services. As a congregation, we are required by Scripture and by God to read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible, as one faithful brother put it. We are required to do those things because they are either explicit commands from the Scriptures or because they may be deduced as a good and necessary consequence of the Scriptures. So we read the Bible because of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. We preach the Bible because of Romans chapter 10, verse 17. We pray the Bible because of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Matthew 21, 13. We sing the Bible because of Ephesians 5, 19 and Colossians 3, 16. We see the Bible, which is to say we celebrate the Lord's Supper and baptism. 
because of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, and Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Luke 22, verses 14 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, we do these things because the Scripture commands us and calls us to do them. And all I'm trying to communicate right now is that Deuteronomy 12 teaches us that God determines how His people worship. That's obvious because He, he rules out the worship of the pagan nations of Canaan. Right? Verse 4 could not be any clearer. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Not only does God rule out the forms of their worship... But he rules out the places of your worship. Verses 2 and 3, Israel was not to worship where the Canaanites worship. Rather, verse 5 says, But you shall seek out the place that the Lord your God will choose, where he would eventually put the temple, right, in Jerusalem. They would eventually have to travel there. Once they made it into the promised land, the kingdom was established and the temple built by Solomon. Holy worship is ordered by God, directed to the place he determines and defined by his means. Verse 6 tells the people of Israel what they should bring to worship. In fact, these three threads, worship that is ordered by God, directed to his place and defined by his means, are elaborated and expanded in greater detail in verses 8 to 32. Moses tells the people of Israel that when they get into the land, there are things that they may and may not eat. There are sacrifices that they may and may not bring, offerings that they may and must present, Levites that they may and must care for. And as chapter 12 comes to a close, Moses circles back to what he said in verse 4. Remember what he, we read there in verse 4? Take a look at it. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And now take a look at verse 31 of chapter 12. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Even more striking are the bookends that verses 1 and verse 32 form. The, the people of Israel are to be careful. There's an emphasis on carefulness. Be careful to do what the Lord commands. See, holy worship is directed by God. He determines the place. He defines the means and methods of worship. But most importantly, what Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 13 teach us is that God alone is worthy of worship. See, God is the object of worship. This has been really the undercurrent of chapter 12, and it becomes the explicit declaration of chapter 13. You see, the only worship that is truly holy is worship that is directed to the holy God. That's why there is such a grave concern for those who arise within Israel who attempt to lure God's people away to false gods. Follow along now. Begin at, at Deuteronomy chapter 13. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 5 of Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Well, we can all see what's going on here, right? Moses is simply saying, look, if some guy turns up in your midst, he does some really nifty things and they kind of happen. And he says, you know what? Let's go after other gods. Moses is saying, don't do it. Put him to death. Moses even names others who might tempt Israel to unholy worship. You see there in verses 6 to 11, he mentions a fellow Israelite, or as he puts it, your brother, the son of your mother. Maybe you're thinking that's a strange Mother's Day text. It is. It's more than strange. It's severe, right? Skip down to verse 10, and you'll see that like the prophet and the dreamer of dreams, the son is to be put to death. The prophet and son are singular examples. But then in verses 12 to 18, Moses gives Israel instructions for what to do if a large group of people, a whole city, abandons holy worship. 
See, verse 15 says that everyone in the city who's guilty is to be put to death. What's more, lest the people of Israel be lured away from Yahweh. In verse 16, Moses instructs them to gather all of their possessions into the town square and then to burn the city and all its spoil with fire. False worship is not to be tolerated within Israel. Yes, false worship cannot be tolerated. Worship is to be directed to God. Now, what about us? I mean, we're obviously not Old Testament Israel. These were instructions for the Old Testament people of God for their life in the promised land. And yet, these two chapters apply to us. And I'll tell you how in a minute. Uh, First, you and me, uh, we need to recognize that we were made for worship. We will worship. The question is, who will we worship? Will we worship the creation? Or will we worship the creator? We worship the creation when we put people, places, and things over and above the creator who made us. You can worship a person and and a relationship with them so that you disregard God's good commands. You can worship your boss and so crave his or her approval that you neglect your family or your duties to the Lord or, or your church family. You can worship money and what you can do with it. You can worship pleasure and selfishly use others. You can worship your kids and their approval so much that you fail to bring them up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. As an individual, your false worship can affect the corporate worship of the people of God. That's what is going on in Deuteronomy 13. And notice what Moses says at the end of verse 5. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Did you know that the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? So keep one finger here and turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you should be able to find the passage on page 954, I believe. 954. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 13... Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. It's a funny thing that happens there with the numbers. 1 Corinthians 5, 13 quotes Deuteronomy 13, 5. Um, And notice the last words of the chapter. Purge the evil person from among you. See that there? Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. And he is applying it to the New Testament people of God. If you were to read this chapter, you would see that Paul basically yells at the church in Corinth. A man in their church professed to be a worshiper of Jesus and he was fornicating with his father's wife. In verse 2 of that chapter, he says, And you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul does not tell the church to stone the man like they were to do in Deuteronomy 13. Instead, he instructs the church to practice church discipline, to to excommunicate him, to bar him from the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, because he's telling a lie about what it means to be a worshiper of Jesus. You cannot be a worshiper of Jesus and a worshiper of sexual morality at the same time. And that's what this man was. He was a worshiper of sexual immorality. And Paul says, you cannot allow him to be a member of your church because he's going to lead other people astray. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's just what Moses was warning about with respect to false prophets and sons and and worthless men who lead cities astray. It just expands. Paul says, brothers and sisters, you've got to do something about this. But why? Why does the church in Corinth need to cleanse out this evil? Do you remember when we were reading Deuteronomy 13, uh, Moses refers back to the Exodus, right? God brought you out of Egypt. That's why you're not to follow other gods. We'll take a look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Remember, what, what happened the, the, the night that Israel was released from, from Egypt? Look at what, what Paul says. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. For, here's why, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We've been set free, brothers and sisters. Paul is concerned for the purity of Christ's church and he's concerned that God's grace in Jesus may not be tainted. Yes, the church is full of sinners, and we are going to sin. But we do not go on sinning so that grace may increase. 
Just as God's redeeming grace revealed in the Passover should have encouraged Israel to remain holy in their worship of Him, so God's grace in Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb, ought to encourage us to pursue the holy worship of Jesus. Now, as I've said, we do not, we do not put unrepentant sinners to death by stoning. No, that's not what Paul says. He says, put unrepentant sinners out of the church membership and away from communion so that their sin may be put to death. Put them out so that they may put away their sin and so return to Jesus and be saved. See, actually, life is now the goal of excommunication. To being saved from that sin. Our worship, including our practice of church membership and discipline, is to be holy. It's to be directed by God and focused on Jesus. You see, God tells His people the what, the where, the who, and the why of holy worship in Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 13. And then in chapter 14, we turn to consider holy conduct. Deuteronomy 14, uh, let's turn back to Deuteronomy 14, can be found on page, I believe, 158 of the Bibles provided. 158 of the Bibles provided. And please follow along as I read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 to 10. And here we're, we're considering our second point. Second point, holy conduct. Verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The camel, the hare, the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So these verses, these, these verses that I've just read, address how God's people are to mourn, and what meat they may eat and may not eat. In fact, we could have kept reading it to see in verses 11 to 21 which birds and, and winged things that God's people could and could not eat. How they were to approach animals that had died naturally. And how they were to not eat a young goat boiled in its mother's milk. And then in verses 22 to 29 of the chapter, we're told about the tithe. And there's even an emphasis on eating in those verses too. Uh, once again, the concern for where the people of Israel, in verses 22 to 29, where the people of Israel eat uh, is carefully emphasized. It's emphasized in verses 23 and 26, in the presence of the Lord. Now, we, we could spend hours hypothesizing about why the Lord says that His people can eat this animal or, or, but, but not that animal. Uh, why, the, why the parted hoof, the cloven hoof? Uh, scholars have spent a great deal, they've spilled a great deal of ink on the subject, and many have suggested that the, the dividing line between uh, what God has said His people may eat and may not eat is based upon health reasons. Right? It's been suggested that God has ordered what Israel may eat based upon what would keep them from disease and death. And that may be true. What is also true is that that's just an educated guess. That reason is simply not put forward in the text of Deuteronomy. And we should be careful not to build too much upon an educated guess, a hypothesis. So, so why then do we have these variegated laws related to mourning? I think that gives us a clue, by the way, relates the morning to, to different meats and to eating a portion of what we tithe in the presence of the Lord. What does the text of Deuteronomy say? Well, what have we just been considering? Right, The larger context of worshiping like the Canaanites do, I think, plays a role into this. But I also think it's true of their broader lives as well. Not only worship, but daily lives. Why shouldn't Israel mourn like the people of Canaan? 
Because they're God's people. And because they're God's people, their worship, like their worship, their daily lives are to be different and distinct from the daily lives of the Canaanites. And how often do we sit down to a meal? It's something that happens very often during the day. They're going to distinguish themselves. God didn't call His Son, as Israel's referred to in the book of Exodus, out of Egypt with the plan to plant them in the Promised Land so that they could be just like the nations who were already living there. No, God wanted a different witness there. God wanted His people to be distinct and to witness to His holy character. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 14 again. You are sons of the living of the Lord your God. See, this, this identity, this relationship to God profoundly shapes their lives in practical ways. Israel has a special relationship with Yahweh. And they are to live before the Lord as obedient sons. And part of this means that they should not mourn as the surrounding nations do because, as Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, Israel's God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. God's people have always grieved as those who have hope. God gladly receives those who have faith in His promises into His eternal kingdom. And He has long made clear that though we may die, yet shall we live. The God of the living also made man and woman in His image. And therefore, bodily mutilation was and is an attack on God's good creation. In cutting themselves, the Canaanites were marring and mutilating God's good gift of the human body. Israel would be different. Surrounding nations would watch them mourn and say, Hey, why aren't they, they cutting themselves and shaving their heads? Don't they know that their brother has died? That's, that's really different. Yes, that's the point. God's people actually value the human body. We, we certainly don't idolize and worship the human body, but we also don't degrade its worth in the sight of God. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should have a different view of the human body than the world does. Our bodies, the ones that He has given us, are good gifts from God. And we must be careful not to worship them. And worship can occur both positively and negatively. We can sinfully deify and disgrace the human body. And we should do neither. Our God has given us bodies, not so that we might selfishly serve ourselves, but so that we might serve Jesus and others with them. We're further reminded in verse 2 of what it means to live as God's children. Verse 2 is a restatement of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God's people are holy, chosen, and beloved. And that means their lives were to be distinct among the surrounding nations. They weren't to worship, they weren't to mourn, and they weren't to eat as Canaanites worshipped, mourned, and ate. In short, they were not going to conduct themselves in the way that the nations did, but in the way that God ordained and, and perhaps a, a burning question for you right now is whether or not you need to amend your dietary intake. Perhaps you noticed in verse 8 that the pig was considered an unclean animal and therefore was not to be eaten. You're asking yourself, uh, no more ham sandwiches or, or bacon on my burgers? Well, here again, I think it's important for us to remember that these laws, they were given to Old Testament Israel to distinguish them from the surrounding nations. Their conduct, even their eating, was to be different. You can notice that the distinction of God's people is spelled out there in verse 21 of chapter 14. Israel may not eat anything that has died naturally, but a sojourner or foreigner, in other words, someone who is not a part of the nation of Israel, may eat it. Under the old covenant, God wanted His people to be distinguished from the Gentile nations. Now today, under the new covenant in Jesus' blood, God is actually drawing Jews and Gentiles together. He no longer distinguishes people so much through material means and meals as He does through spiritual means. So Jesus taught His follower, followers in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? 
And then, and then we get this wonderfully divinely inspired comment from Mark where he says, Thus, he declared all foods clean. So you can have ham. You can have bacon on that burger. It is clean. Jesus said as much. And this is further underscored in Peter's fantastic vision in Acts chapter 10. Peter sees this great sheep let down from heaven with all kinds of different animals on it. He sees clean and unclean animals on it. And a voice from heaven tells Peter, Peter, kill and eat. It's a command. And Peter says, no, no, God, I'm not going to eat unclean things. I'm not going to do that. And that's when the voice from heaven responds again, saying in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. You see, what distinguishes the people of God under the new covenant is not what we eat, but who we eat with. People from every tongue and tribe and nation gather at the table of the Lord Jesus and we commune with Him. It is through our faith union with Jesus that we become sons and daughters of the Most High God. Our union and communion with Jesus ought to profoundly shape our conduct in the world. And so Titus chapter 2 verse 14 teaches us that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. See, true believers in Jesus are zealous for good works, for holy conduct that points back to our redemption by our Holy Savior, in which He is now drawing Jews and Gentiles together to be united to Jesus. And now, as we, as we look at these laws in, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, we, we may be tempted to think that Yahweh was being hard or harsh with the people of Israel. We, we may be tempted to think that His law was a burden, but take a look at verse 24 of Deuteronomy 14. Verse 24, Moses says, And if the way is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set His name there, then you shall turn it into money, and bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that God chooses. You see that there? God is actually making an allowance for the different circumstances that His people might find themselves in. If Jerusalem's too far to carry your sacrifice too, then go ahead and sell it and bring that money to Jerusalem and, and worship the Lord your God there. He's not trying to make life under His rule a burden. He's trying to make it a blessing for His people. And that is because He is a good Father. He is a good God. And we see this even in chapter 15 where we discover laws related to holy generosity. And this is the last point that we want to consider together. Holy generosity. Please follow along as I read the, the first couple of verses of chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. You see, these two verses function as a foundational principle of much of what we find in the chapter as a whole. And I hope it's not hard for you to see how generous this practice would have been. God had great plans to bless His people in the promised land of Canaan, and yet many of God's people would still be in need. This would mean that one Hebrew would need to lend to another Hebrew, and as such, they would need to pay back their debts. They would need to pay back their debts unless, you see here, the sabbatical year, the, the seventh year, came first. And when the seventh year came, regardless of how much outstanding debt remained, the one indebted would be released from his debt. So let's try to imagine this, how this would work, right? So to, to help you imagine how this would look like, imagine having a mortgage on a home and diligently paying that mortgage down year after year. But when the seventh year came, being released from the mortgage by the bank. Though you still had thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay. That would be pretty generous of the bank, right? The goal of this program was to lift fellow Israelites out of debt and into stability. God didn't want there to be poor among the people of Israel. Verse 4. And yet because this is a fallen world filled with sin, there would be poor among the people of Israel. You see that in verse 7. Sometimes foolishness and sloth 
leads to poverty, but other times, poverty can come upon a person through no fault of their own. And the same is true in our day as well. Sometimes poverty comes upon a person even when they've been diligent and faithful stewards. Wise and careful generosity plays an important role in preserving life and helping the impoverished to slowly reestablish their financial footing. But because it is human nature to love money, Moses warns against hard-heartedness. In order for the poor to regain their footing, those with wealth will have to open their hearts and open their wallets. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 to 11. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hands to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, hmm, the seventh year, the year of the release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you. And you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hands to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. See, our God knows just how the human heart works, doesn't He? He knew that the people of Israel would be watching the clock. They'd be watching the sabbatical year. And then get grumpy about lending to their neighbor. And notice it says, whatever he needs. They're knowing, I'm going to lose everything I give to him. Because the sabbatical near is so close. See, God knows just how our hearts work. Not only were they commanded to give, but they were commanded to give generously. As verse 11 says, open wide your hand to your brother. Now, the people of Israel didn't have to be quite as generous to a foreigner or the foreign nations who came to them and asked to borrow money. They could hold the debt of the foreigner or the foreign nations longer. See, verses 3 and 6 of this chapter actually make that clear. But when they were dealing with the needs of a fellow Israelite, one who was part of the covenant community, then there, there was generosity required. A special regard was required. Blessing a fellow Israelite generously should have grown out of an appreciation of how God had so richly blessed His people in their redemption from Egypt, releasing them from slavery. Remember, they took the goods of the people of Egypt with them as they left and were released from slavery. Yes, God so generously blessed them as they were released. And He was now giving them the riches of the promised land. These verses, I think, should remind us that we have all incurred a debt that we cannot repay. Our sins against God have mounted up to the heavens. And we must come to understand that we are poor in spirit. And we cannot repay what the Lord Jesus has done to purchase us by His blood. I hope that all of this talk about being released from debt is bringing to your mind a parable that Jesus told about forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18. If you recall, uh, in Matthew chapter 18, Peter... You gotta love Peter. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me? You know, as many as seven times. And Jesus says to him, No, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. And the point is that Jesus escalates this number of times that we're to forgive our brother far above the number that Peter proposes. In fact, it's kind of a, a limitless escalation by that number. Uh, there's no sense in keeping track. There's no sense in keeping track of the number of times you have to forgive your brother. Because whenever he repents, you ought to forgive him. This is how God deals with us. And it becomes evident in the parable that Jesus goes on to tell, right? The, the meaning of this parable was pretty transparent. There's this uh, servant who owes the king a ton of money. He owes him 10,000 talents, Jesus says. And that's an amount that's so high that those listening to Jesus would have had difficulty imagining just how much it was. 
The amount of debt was infinitely great. There's no way the servant could have ever paid the king back. And in his grace and mercy, the king forgave. Or he released him from that debt. And that's what's taken place with us, isn't it? This is how God has dealt with us. We have sinned against the infinite and eternal God. We've rebelled against Him. He said, go this way. And we've said, no, 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 I'm going to go my own way. We have sinned against Him. The infinite and eternal God. And in so doing, we are in danger of facing an infinite and eternal punishment for our sins. But when we humbly pray, Lord, forgive us our debts. God says yes in Jesus Christ. This is why we are called to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. This is why we are called to release from retribution and relational hostility those who genuinely repent. Christian, who do you need to release from their sin against you? Who do you need to forgive? Remember that the Lord has forgiven you. Forgiveness from God is His gracious pardon to those who repent and believe. In other words, when God forgives repentant sinners, He does not hold our trespasses and sins against us. And while the punishment that's due to our sin does not fall upon us, it does fall, it has fallen upon the Lord Jesus Christ because, because God is just. He must punish sin. That's the good news of the Bible. It is that Jesus Christ humbled Himself and took the punishment for the sins of those who would repent and believe. This is how we are released from our debt of sin. God the Son left His throne in heaven and came to earth. He took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. What was it the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9? This is what he said. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, that's Jesus, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus was fully man. He was fully God. And he lived a humble life of obedience to God the Father. And as the Father's perfect child, as his perfect son, he did what the Father said. And yet, at the right time, he died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And three days after his death, God raised him from the dead and proved to us that our sins can be forgiven through him. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, then you need to know that, this, that Jesus calls you now to humble yourself, to confess that you have sinned, that you are in a great debt before God, and that you're in need of forgiveness and being released from that debt. And you need to believe that Jesus is the one who can release you from that debt. Jesus calls each one of us to turn from our sin and to come for him, to, and come to him with a with faith like a child, believing that he lived and died and was raised from the grave for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. And not just one or two of our sins, but for all of them. And if you want to know more about what it means to, to trust in Jesus Christ with faith with faith like a child, to be one of his sons and to be forgiven of your sins, to be released from your debt against God. And please come and talk with a Christian friend that you came here with this morning, with a family member. Come and find me at the door after the service. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to humbly come to Jesus and be forgiven and released from your sin. And as we think about the generosity displayed here in Deuteronomy 15, I think there are other applications that we need to think through and ponder as well. We need to keep in mind that we, the New Testament people of God, again, we're not Old Testament Israel. And so we're not under the law of the sabbatical year. And still, we are to be generous. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul tells us, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to the household of faith. You see, just as the people of Israel were to have a special regard and generosity toward their fellow Israelites who were struggling, so we ought to have a special regard for and generosity toward those in our church family and covenant community who are in need. Here, we do that primarily through our benevolence fund as a congregation. Uh, we, through our benevolence fund, we, we help members with, with rent and with medical care and with other needs as they become a parent. And I've also known uh, members who have just personally and quietly helped a fellow brother or sister in Christ. 
And I praise God for the generosity of this congregation. Brothers and sisters, keep exercising affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. Be, keep being generous and kind to one another. This reflects the generosity of our good God. Deuteronomy chapter 15. You take a look there at verses 12 to 18. And let's be honest. These are verses that make us uncomfortable. They make us uncomfortable because they mention slavery. And whenever we think of slavery, uh, we tend to think of chattel slavery. That's what generally comes to mind. That institution, institution which ran rampant in the United States and other places around the globe was horrific, wicked, and sinful. It ought not be defended from the Bible. It should never have been defended from the Bible. And I will not do that here. Defending chattel slavery from the Bible, I believe, was and is a gross misuse of the Scriptures. It's important to recognize that the kind of slavery mentioned here in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 to 18, is not chattel slavery. What we're looking at in these verses is more akin to indentured servitude. And it occurred among or between the people of Israel. Uh, sadly, sometimes an Israelite's debt would mount up so high uh, that they would have to sell themselves into servitude to their fellow brother. Still, even here, the sabbatical year uh, of release applied to them. At the seventh year, they would be released. But notice, notice how they're to be treated in the release. Take a look at verse 13. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Here again, we see the call to generously help fellow members of the covenant community put their lives back together again. One of the striking things that these verses also mention is that some might want to remain slaves. That's what verses 16 to 18 are about. What would convince someone to stay in servitude? I think that it would have to be a various, very generous and gracious spirit. I think that those who serve as leaders and managers in workplaces would do well to embody a gracious and generous spirit. Now, I do not think that we uh, see here in generous, what we see here in Deuteronomy 15, I don't think it maps directly onto uh, our existence and employment structure today. Nevertheless, I think we can learn from the grace and generosity that we see here. Uh, as an employer, shouldn't you seek to bless those under your leadership so that they find it hard to leave because they have so enjoyed working for you? Do your employees want to work for you because you are a gracious and generous boss? Or do they dread working for you? If you have the privilege of leading and managing employees, seek to make your leadership a blessing rather than a burden. And the same is true for husbands and fathers too. We need to seek to love and lead in such a way that's gracious and generous that those under our care want to lead and follow. Well, Deuteronomy 15 closes in verses 19 to 23 with regulations on dedicating firstborn animals. This would be difficult to do uh, given there's no promise of a secondborn, right? There's, this is an act of faith to give up your firstborn. Though generally speaking, they do come along. It's not a guarantee. Here we see a call to give to God first. And not only that, but to give to God what is best. Verse 21 talks about blindness and blemishes. See, the people of Israel could not give anything that was less than the best. True generosity toward God is measured not by giving Him the leftovers, but by giving Him the first and best. That's a principle that we could really work out in, in numerous directions. Do we give God the first and best of our time? Do we give God the first and best of our strength? Do we give God the, the first and best of our resources? Do we give God the first and best of the first day of the week? You know, there is one strange note that this chapter sounds out um, that has actually made an appearance elsewhere in these two chapters. Take a look at verse 23. See there in verse 23, the people of Israel are told uh, that when they eat of these sacrifices offered, that they may not eat of its blood, but instead they must pour it out on the ground. This actually 
appear twice in chapter 12. We kind of skipped over it. It's also mentioned in the book of Leviticus. There's a significant principle at work here that we must come to understand. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Here we see blood is connected to life. That animal gave its life so that you might eat and live. Now read Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 23. Deuteronomy 15, 23. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. See, pouring out the blood on the ground symbolized giving the life of the animal back to God. The one who is the giver of life to all things. These sacrifices are soon going to be connected to the feasts in chapter 16. Sacrifices of sheep and goats in the Old Testament are very often connected to the forgiveness of sins. We, we read this morning from the book of Hebrews, right? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So the people of Israel would offer these firstborn animals back to God. These animals would give their lives. They would shed their blood so that the people of Israel might be forgiven as they believe the promises of God, who would one day send His Messiah to save them from their sin. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Think about this, brothers and sisters. The blood of a spotless firstborn was given back to God. Think about our dear Savior. Think about Jesus Christ, who the Apostle John called the Lamb of God in John chapter 1, verse 29. And do you remember what Jesus said to His disciples in the Last Supper? Do you remember what Jesus said about pouring something out in that meal? As Jesus held the cup of the new covenant, He said this to His disciples in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. For this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus knew that He was pouring out His blood and giving His life back to God the Father for us. He would die so that we might live. The firstborn, spotless Lamb of God had come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one who says to us, I want you to be totally holy. I'm going to give my life for you to cleanse you by my blood so that you might be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, this is why we give ourselves to Him and our worship to Him, our totally all-sufficient Savior has given Himself for us. Brothers and sisters, this is why holy worship is directed by Jesus and is directed to Jesus. In the New Testament, He becomes the place of worship. There is coming a day, He says in the Gospel of John, where you're not going to worship on this mountain because He is going to be the fulfillment of the temple. He is the place, the person we worship. He's the only one we're to worship. We shall have no other gods before Him. And this is why holy conduct is mirrored and patterned on Jesus' life because His life was spotless. It was sinless. He poured out His blood for us. And this is why He calls for holy generosity among His people because He so generously gave His life for us and for our salvation. So we live generously to the glory of His name. Let's pray together.